Ruth chapter 1. Of all the places to go for a Father's Day message, Ruth is probably the least likely that you would think. But uh, originally I had three principles for parenting that I wanted to share with you this morning. And uh, we're going to reduce that probably to just one and uh, still get you out before 4 o'clock this afternoon. So... I just listen, say, make sure you're listening. It'll be way before four o'clock, just for the record, all right? Uh, our vacation Bible school is right around the corner. Matter of fact, it starts a week from tomorrow, and we'll hear more about some of that before this service is over, also. But the theme is camping, and it's taken me back to some of the days when I used to go backpacking. And uh, that was one of the passions of my life when I was a younger guy. And uh, now, unless they get me in a helicopter to drop me off at the top of the mountain where there is a nice hotel, I'll probably not ever do that again. Uh, strapping a, pound, a pack on my back that weighs 60 pounds and walking for about eight hours uphill into uh, less and less oxygen used to be fun, now it's nuts. But having said that, it was a passion for me uh, for a number of different reasons. Uh, one of the things was it gave me a good opportunity to kind of give my wife a hard time in the lead-in to that. Uh, we used to start a countdown about 100 days out from the time that we were going to leave. And so I would let her every once in a while just say, hey, you know, 89 more days or 60 more days or whatever. Well, the first week or two, that was a lot of fun for her. And then after that, it was like, just be quiet. I don't want to hear it. Just why don't you just leave now, that kind of thing. And another part of that preliminary trip stuff was to take my pack out and to unpack it, spread it out across the living room floor, take inventory of what was there, and then pack it back in. And I did that, what, about once a week or so leading into it. Uh, and it gave me a good opportunity to give her a hard time about that. So finally, uh, she told me she didn't want to see that garbage anymore. Um, Now, the reason I did it, though, was because there's something about being on a trip like that, nine, ten miles into the backcountry, all on foot, uh, where you can't go to the corner store and get something that you forgot. And the first time I went on a trip and forgot something that was really important, like water, um, then I learned that it's not really all that smart to go backwards and, uh, you know, have to walk back downhill and back up and all of that. So we just went through the process of making sure that everything we needed for the trip, we had in the pack. Now, on this Father's Day, as we're emphasizing today families and parenting especially, in a church and in a community with so many young families and young children... One of the things that I want to try to do for you is to make sure that you've got some things for the journey. It's, it can be very much like a solo act for you and for your whole family, whatever, whether it's a single parent family or both parents are there. You can often feel like you're just isolated from the rest of the world when you're dealing with kids. What do you need to get through The Bible is full of principles for us as parents. And as we go forward uh, over the coming years, I hope that we'll get to a bunch of those as we work our way through different times of the year and different sermon series. But today I want to just kind of leave you with one, given the time that we have, just one basic tool for you and essential for you as a parent as you move forward. And by the way, if you happen to be a parent whose kids are already out of the house 
Or maybe you're an adult and you don't have any kids. These principles, and this particular one we're going to look at today, fits every part of life for us. I'm going to draw specific application to parents, but it fits for all of us. So let's look together at this passage out of the book of Ruth. We're actually in Ruth chapter 1. Now, here's the first principle. I'll get to the passage in just a second, but here's the principle. If you're going to be parenting, or if you're not a parent, you're just trying to get through life well, here's the principle. Interpret correctly. I had a friend. Actually, he's one of my mentors in life. His name is Don. He was a pastor for a few years. And then God called him out of the pastorate into the armed services, particularly the Air Force. And he was a chaplain for the Air Force for several decades. He retired as a lieutenant, commander, uh, lieutenant colonel. Uh, he went after he got out of the Air Force after all of those years and at that rank. He went back to school, earned a doctorate in education. He's an incredibly intelligent guy, but he's just down on the bottom shelf where everybody lives. That's one of the reasons I loved him so much. He took it on himself to kind of adopt in young, ignorant preacher boys, which now you understand why he liked me. And so he kind of took me under his wing and he began to teach me some things about being a minister. And, and, and I just, even to this day, he's one of my favorite people in all of the world. Well, in his time as an Air Force chaplain, he was stationed all over the world. He went through several different conflicts and uh, uh, had in, you know, incredible uh, responsibilities in dealing with servicemen. And um, part of his assignment sent him to Italy, or as he liked to call it, Italy. And in Italy, they speak Italian, all right? Now, I met him when I was in deep south Texas where they speak Spanish for the most part. And he was always trying to make Italian words, or in his way of saying it, Italian words, to Spanish. Now, there's some similarity. And so one day we were talking and he started telling me a story and it emphasizes this thing about interpreting things correctly. While he was in Italy, he took one of the local friends that he had there, and they went out into the countryside to do several different things. Came time to eat. They stopped at this little countryside, looked like a shack, actually, just like a village place there. And, and well, as it turns out, it was a restaurant, kind of a mom-and-pop local thing. And he went in there to eat, and uh, they gave him the menu. And the menu was, as you can imagine, in Italian. Well, he was a budding Italian scholar in his own mind. And rather than ask his friend what it was, he decided he would interpret for himself. And he was in the mood, he said, he'd always wanted to try rabbit. I know we have some rabbit farmers. Like, you call them farmers, ranchers? I don't know what you do with rabbits. But anyway, they, he wanted to try rabbit. And so he started to order this. And he said, oh, that's the rabbit. Because he knew the word. And he ordered rabbit, and he got this rabbit stew, and he started eating it, and he thought to himself, I don't like rabbit. But he also knew local sensitivities, and you know, you, you don't spit soup out of your mouth or stew out of your mouth when you just ordered it. It's a defense to the cook. And so he went ahead and ate the rest of it, and he, as he finished the thing, he's thinking to himself, that's the worst thing I ever ate in my life. I'll never eat rabbit again. And then they left, and so his friend, the local guy, asked him afterwards, so what would you think? He said, I don't like that rabbit. He said, oh, you didn't eat rabbit. 
He said, yeah, I ordered the rabbit stew. He said, no, you ordered the gato stew. Now, if you don't know what gato is in Spanish, that means cat. Oh, see, aren't you hungry for lunch now? You see how important it is to interpret correctly? You just never know what you might eat. I see. I love that. I I love the looks that I'm getting now. I just saved you a ton of money on lunch right there. Make sure that you interpret correctly. Now, specifically, as it relates to how we live our lives, and especially as parents, it's important that we interpret our life situations correctly. Now, here's where I'm going to go with this. I'm going to tell you up front so when we get there, you'll know we got there. Life is full of opportunity for us to make a bad read and end up bitter about living. Let's look at Naomi, okay? In Ruth chapter 1, the first person that we want to look at here is Naomi. Now, it really revolves around Naomi and her husband and her sons and her daughters-in-law. But Naomi is the one we're looking at, and especially as we get to the end of this passage. So let me just, as we walk through this, I'm going to stop occasionally and make sure that we're getting her situation correctly. All right? So in the days when the judges ruled... Now, if you don't remember too much, or maybe you just need a refresher, he's referring to the judges, the period of Israelite history before King Saul, before King David. Uh, and it's that time, well, the way the book of Judges finishes out, it says, and in those days, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's called anarchy. By the way, that's America of the 21st century. And if you don't like America of the 21st century, you wouldn't have liked the time of the judges because it was a time of spiritual deadness there. A long way removed from the time of Moses and Joshua when they were seeing the hand of God at work. Through the period of the judges, it was a time when they just moved further and further away from the covenant that God had made with them as a people. So that's one strike in the things are not going well time of Naomi's life. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. There's strike two in her life. Now, we think of famine. I moved here last year just almost exactly a year ago now, not quite. And uh, I moved into a time when there was a drought here. And I moved from an area where it rained very little, most of the time, no rain, to a place where you get lots of rain. And I drove around, Teresa and I drove around, going, wow, look how green it is. And all of you kept saying, oh, it's just, everything's dead around here. It's just, we're in this drought. And I was thinking, this is a great improvement over where I came from. So take that picture and multiply it 10,000 times for what a drought would do back in these days, in the days of Ruth. That's an area of the country, of the world, very little rain anyway. Seasonal rains, to be exact. And with that, if they didn't get the rains, then they were certainly to not get the crops, which means their whole economy would fall apart in one season, potentially. And that's the picture that we have here. So there's two strikes, and the things are not going all that well for Naomi. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem of Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, 
he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now I'm going to stop reading for just a second there and make sure we understand what happens here. Naomi, we already have two strikes and the things are not great part of her life. Now this is a third one. Because what she's doing now with her husband as the lead there is they're saying things are so bad here in the promised land, to put your history back in place biblically, that we're going to now go out of the promised land over to the lowest part of the whole earth, the Dead Sea, in the Jordan Valley where it dumps into the Dead Sea, geographically the lowest uh, altitude in all of the planet, hottest temperatures, those kind of things, over on the other side of the Dead Sea from Bethlehem and what is now Jerusalem, straight across just a handful of miles is the country of Moab in biblical times. To put that in perspective for you, if... Lumberton were Bethlehem, then we're talking basically going to Lake Charles, okay, distance-wise and all of that. But the terrain is totally different. They're in Jerusalem where it's high enough that it gets rain and therefore they have olive trees and those kind of things and enough pasture for sheep and all that kind of stuff. They're going over to Moab where there's not anything green. They don't even paint stuff green there because people don't understand the color. That's how dry it is over there. They're leaving the promised land to go over to this other land that was pre-promised land. That's where Moses was buried. That's when the children of Israel came across and they went through that area and they camped over there waiting to come across. You remember all of those stories. So now we have several strikes over in the situation is bad part of our life. Now we go to verse 5, or excuse me, verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Okay, there's strike 4. I don't even need to go there about what that means for her. Fortunately, she still has her sons to take care of her in that society. Remember, they're in a foreign country at this point. Verse 4. These took Moabite wives. Here's strike 5. You remember that God told the children of Israel when they went to the promised land, don't intermarry with them. It's equally true for them when they went out of the promised land not to intermarry out there either. These Moabite, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the other name was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years, and both Malin and Killian died. Strike, how many is that? You see how bad her situation is? So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. You could just look at this on the surface and say, that's a bad scene. But you see, that's an interpretation. Now, I'll give, give you, I, I'm the one setting this interpretation up. I look at that. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Okay? But let's continue now. Verse 6. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That's back in Bethlehem. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. 
In other words, go get remarried. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Now I want you to listen to her words, to the interpretation of her circumstances. She said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you even wait for them until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What is she saying? I'll just wrap it all up in this one statement. God abandoned me. Now, you you know what? I kind of get that interpretation from what she said. I kind of get where she gets there based on everything that happened to her coming into that. How can you go through all of the garbage that she went through and not think that somehow God checked out on you? Let me just stop here for a second and let's throw the net out wide and catch as many people as we can. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where it got so bad that somewhere you wondered if maybe God wasn't finished with you? That maybe somehow God had just said, you know what, I don't think I'll help you anymore. That happens to people. That happens to church people. That happens to Christian people. And it's probably happened enough that in this room, most of us have had a situation or two where the interpretation that we took to it was, God has abandoned me. When you really get right down to it, it's enough to make you bitter, isn't it? When you go through the fire and you continue to deal with garbage and it looks like all of that church stuff and all those goody words that the preacher wants to throw at you and, oh, God loves you, God is good all the time, God is good, yeah? Well, not today, preacher, don't throw that garbage at me. It happens. Nowhere in Scripture do we find that Christians are exempt from trouble. And if we're not careful... We'll take the situations of life and interpret them to say something that's just not true. And it's enough to make you bitter. Well, as a matter of fact, let's look at what Naomi says. We're going to jump forward now to verse 16. But Ruth said, now this is, I'll read verse 15. And she said, that is Ruth, see, or Naomi, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Ruth gets it right here. This is the second principle we're not going to have time for today. Where you die, I will die, and there will be buried. May the Lord do to me more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That's a great word for her to say. Ruth gets it right. That's the second principle. That'll be a different message. But let's jump forward now in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town said, Wow, that's Naomi, isn't it? She's been gone 10 years, that's Naomi. 
And she said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? How did she interpret the events of her life? God did it. You ever feel that way? That maybe God has it in for you. Ultimately, what is it that causes bitterness in people? Now, the easy answer, it's the wrong answer, but the easy answer is that ultimately, bitterness is caused by the situations we go through. But let me tell you why that's wrong. Because bitterness is a choice. Now, I hate to drop that on you because it takes you and puts you right in the middle of the flow of responsibility. Naomi's reflections here show us that she chooses to be bitter because of all of the situations that she's gone through. And in her mind, she jumps to a truth that's not truth at all. Has God, let's, let's just try this on for size, has God really abandoned her in this? Now, the Sunday school answer is no, okay? It's also the right answer, okay? That's the problem with Sunday school answers. They're usually right but they don't usually get down into the heart of who we are. God has not abandoned her. As a matter of fact, you want to go check out the lineage of Jesus. You'll find that this lady fits right in there. As a matter of fact, she's going to have a grandson down the road somewhere. I think it's a great-grandson, if I remember right, who's going to be named King David. A man after God's own heart. So what we find here is that God's working his plan with this lady. And Ruth, her foreigner daughter-in-law, who's a widow also. But the circumstances, as they come to her, she filters them through this thing that says, this shouldn't be happening to me. Christians say that a lot. We so buy into the romantic view of what being a Christian means, and that is that, well, it's all honey and no bees. Sorry, Mike. But we, we just buy into that. You don't get honey without bees. That, that's basically right, okay? So sometimes in our lives, those negative situations that we face are the things that are necessary, hello, that are necessary to move us where God wants us to go. Okay, now, full stop, time out. Parents, you ever face a situation with your kids where you thought to yourself, if I could get away with murder, I'd do it. Now, don't answer that, okay? Because we have law enforcement people in our church. I think it's one thing to think about it, it's another thing to act on it, but... Now, I'm going to take it off of the funny part of it, and let's bring it right back to where we're... Have you ever had a situation with your kids as a parent where you thought to yourself, why are they doing this to me? Ever had a situation with your kids where it took you to the end of yourself, and you thought to yourself, come on, God, 
show up. You ever have a situation with your kids where you just couldn't do anything for them because of the choices they made? I don't care how old you are here. If you have kids at all, whether they're infants or out of the house, every parent is going to face situations where your kids make you believe that God abandoned you. What do you do with that? Here's a good question to ask. Where's God in that? When you find yourself pushed beyond yourself and the situational focus that you have is so tied into the right now and the right now is garbage and you tend to think, I'm not even sure God could deal with this kid. Your filter in that matters because part of this thing that I'm talking about today, it's not that it's hereditary, it's not. Your kids choose to be bitter too. But if kids grow up in a home with a bitter parent, they're going to be bitter kids. And they're going to grow up to be bitter parents themselves. You know how I know that to be true? I was a youth minister for a long time. Some of the most bitter, ungodly kids came from some of the most church-minded and yet shallow Christian people who couldn't get it right with their kids. Now, I'm not using that as a way of beating anybody up. I'm just reading the signs. It's one thing to have truth and say, oh, God is good. It's another thing to appropriate that into your life when things don't look all that good and ask yourself, where is God in this? So find the hand of God in your situation. Because if your kids are not stressing you today, just stick around long enough. It's coming. That's just part of the nature. You did it to your parents. Well, not me, preacher. I was an angel. All right, you keep telling yourself that. Let's, we'll just go with that, okay? No, you're a person just like I am. We all have our issues. Be careful what you pass on to your kids. Because in the bottom line point of living for us as parents, our kids see us at our best and at our worst. They remember both. What is it that is the goal of parenting? I told you earlier, the second part of this thing is Ruth and what she has to say there. Uh, That is, know where you're going. What are you trying to create in your kids? It's hard to remember that sometimes when they're five or six years old or 15 or 16, 25 or 26. Uh, What are you trying to create in them? What are you trying to do with them? Teresa and I had two basic goals with our kids. The first one was get them out of the house. That's true. Now we're two-thirds of the way there. (laughs) That's not true. We feel like we've accomplished that, okay? But hear this, okay? And Lauren really needs to hear this. I pick on her a lot up here, but I love her like crazy. And she knows I do, right? Uh, And we're proud of all of our kids. But part of our goal was to get them out of the house. You know why? Because God didn't give them to you for you to hang on to them forever. The whole point of raising children is to get them out of your house. 
Some of the most messed up adults I know never left home in any way, psychologically, emotionally, or physically. Raise them to leave home. Now, what that means is you want to raise them like Ruth was there. You go back and read those verses where I was talking about her. Ruth knows what she is about. That's what you want in your kids. You want kids who can function socially. You want kids who can contribute to society. You want them to be good citizens. Don't raise some knucklehead, okay? Now, I know that's easier said than done. Been there, done that. World's got enough knuckleheads, okay? What we need are responsible children who can grow up and contribute to our society. Because let me tell you something, this society is not all that great anymore. And as church people, we can sit back and we can throw rocks at whomever, but it's our fault that we're in this shape. So raise kids who can function socially and contribute to society. They're good citizens, Let me tell you something. If that's all our goal was with our kids, we failed our children, even though they accomplished that. Because the spiritual reality of life argues for a much deeper goal for parenting. That is that you raise kids who have a fear of God. And I don't mean the shrink back like he's going to zap me kind of fear. I'm talking about the kind of fear of God that says, I recognize that he is God, he is my God. And I am his child because of Jesus Christ. That's the kid I want to raise. I heard my dad say, I mean, I gave my parents all kinds of reasons to walk out on God. On the first days I stood up to preach and my dad was there. He stood up later and he said, it's a great day when your children rise up to call you blessed. But it's a greater day when they rise up to call your God blessed. That's what you're doing, parents. Naomi, in 10 years, so impacted the life of her daughter-in-law that her daughter-in-law said, your God works. I can tell he works. Now, that's amazing to me because Naomi was bitter. But something about her still, Ruth said, that's what I need. So what are you doing with your kids? It is not about Okay, I said this in the earlier stuff, so I say it here, okay? Interpret correctly. Just because your little kindergartner brings home a paper of finger painting and you like it, he ain't no Rembrandt, okay? Sorry, hate to tell you that. Just because because they win some award at the school track meet, that doesn't mean they're going to be Carl Lewis or Hussein Bolt or whomever that may be, okay? They're just kids. Let them be kids, But raise them up to call God blessed. And if you can interpret the circumstances well, and you can see God's hand and help them to see God's hand even in the negative stuff, you're well down your road to them being able to say, your God is my God. The goal for me as a parent with my kids was to get them to the point that their faith was their faith. Not mine. So many parents just push it, push it, push it. You've got to believe this, got to believe, got to believe, got to believe, got to believe. And then they send them off to school somewhere and the kids don't have it. 
they got to personalize that faith. And sometimes the way they personalize it is the way you personalized it, which means they got to go through garbage. That's when God was most real to me. It was when I was most real in the gutter. And all of a sudden I realized, hey, that stuff my dad told me works. Isn't it amazing? A Father's Day message comes from two ladies. We didn't even get the Boaz. He does a pretty good job in this story. Go read it. Let's pray. Father, serious, serious business. Sometimes I wonder why you even put up with us in our feeble attempts at getting spiritual stuff right with our kids. I think I know the answer to that. It's because it's important stuff. and We can't do it on our own. So help us where we need help the most. We pray that you'd raise up a generation in this church of parents who know what it means to walk with you even through the dark times and call you blessed. And by extension, you'd raise up another generation of kids here who are strong in your work. Regardless of the circumstances, they see things well and they still choose to be identified as the children of God. May it be so. As our prayer in Jesus' name.